Welcome to the public philosophy series for Living Philosophy, which explores with academic guests philosophical ideas that matter to our everyday life. The public philosophy episodes are distinguishable from our regular episodes by the bespoke thumbnail artwork provided by Detour Studios. As always, if you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed our past episodes, please take the time to rate and review Living Philosophy wherever you are streaming content. I'm your host, Dr. Todd May, and my apologies to our listeners. I'm getting over a bit of a head cold, and so my voice is more nasally than usual. Our topic for this episode is cryptocurrency and the blockchain. I'll say it now just to get it out of the way. Cryptocurrency, blockchain technology, NFTs, and the metaverse they are all here to stay in some way, shape, or form. I say this not as an endorsement of them, but as an observation of how new technologies generally cannot be reversed once they become so thoroughly embedded in our social and practical lives. It may not be apparent now, but all things blockchain are already transforming things beneath the surface. Such technologies may not become what they originally intended to be, but it's important to see what emerging technologies present in terms of increasing our capabilities and the risks that might inhere in them. In fact, the give and take between gift and risk has been understood at the heart of any technology from the earliest of times. Let me just mention a few from ancient Greek mythology, Icarus and the technology of flight and the risk metaphorically expressed of soaring too high and too close to the sun. Hephaestus, the god of artifice or techne, and how his significance is a thought-provoking coincidence of innovation, or the kinds of new inventions he rots, and disability, or how he is club-footed and unpleasant to look at. Then there's the gift of fire, not a technology per se, but certainly that which allows humans to engage in technological innovation. According to one version of the myth of Pandora, Zeus punishes the humans for using fire by sending Pandora, an artificial woman created by Hephaestus, to cause trouble amongst them. So what is really involved in the technologies we group under the blockchain and cryptocurrencies? Are they just driven by financial speculation? Are they all Ponzi schemes? Is financial freedom really possible through the decentralized finance platforms on the blockchain? It's a daunting project trying to understand emergent technologies when one is caught amidst them. Perhaps philosophy can help us gain a clearer understanding on cryptocurrencies and the blockchain. Our guest for this episode is Sebastian Purcell, who is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the State University of New York, Cortland. He specializes in ethical philosophy, political philosophy, ancient Greek and Roman philosophy, and phenomenology and hermeneutics. Sebastian has a forthcoming book on Aztec philosophy and has published numerous articles on topics ranging from spatiality and narrative to comparisons between Aztec philosophy and Aristotle. But that's not all. Sebastian is also one of the most prominent educators and personalities in the cryptocurrency space with thousands of followers on Quora and Discord. He is founder of the educational organization on cryptocurrency trading called the Art of the Bubble, and he is co-founder, along with his wife, Elise Purcell, who is also a professor of philosophy of the blockchain consulting firm, Bitables. And on that note, just a bit of a disclaimer. In addition to hosting this podcast, I also work as a researcher and coach for both the Art of the Bubble and Bitables. But I think that you'll find, regardless of this association, Sebastian's take on cryptocurrency and the state of the world in today's uncertain and fast-changing environment 
will provide a great deal of insight and food for thought. And this is because, at least for me, today's financial landscape requires much more than fiscal know-how. It requires understanding the philosophical, social, and ethical implications of our technologies. With over a decade of experience in philosophy, logic, mathematics, finance, and investment, Sebastian is the ideal person to help make sense of what's on the horizon. Sebastian, welcome to Living Philosophy. Thanks to have me, Todd. I'm, I'm glad we could set aside a time to do this finally. Philosophy and finance aren't two interests that people might often group amicably together. In fact, they might say they are opposed to one another if one takes philosophy to have a tendency to be skeptical of capitalism. On top of that, you have a background in mathematics and writing algorithms. It's an unusual mix. How did all these facets come together for you? I, I realize it's an unusual mix, and that's what makes me sort of an odd duck in all of this. Probably the best way to answer this is autobiographically. Some of it is just historical contingency. My mother wanted me to be a software engineer about it at the age of five, and she thought that was a good thing. And so me and one of my best friends, we were coding at that age, not like sophisticated stuff, but that's what we were doing. And that was always kind of part of my my life. Um, I actually stepped away from the trajectory of becoming a software engineer, whereas my other friends went went on and became software engineers, and, that, and that's what they are, right? I'm the one who who quit that path, became a professor, but you know, I still taught logic throughout the whole course of my um, graduate study. Uh, I initially focused on using mathematical models to understand sort of what macroeconomic phenomena look like. And for a very long time, since I was about 20, I was using algorithms to uh, trade stocks initially. It turned out I read a book by Peter Lynch, who was uh, the manager of Magellan Global and one of the most successful uh, fund managers out there. He was also a philosopher, incidentally. He expressed his thoughts in such a way that I realized I could put those into an algorithm and just trade stocks, which is kind of how I began trading. So effectively, I, I took Peter Lynch's ideas, turned it into an algo. I could use the rudimentary uh, data that uh, at the time Yahoo Finance could give me way back then and kind of organize it all. And, and that's how I began trading very early on. It was just a way at that point for me to make a little bit more money. And I was sort of dumb about it. I did really well at one point and I was going to buy um, a Corvette. My then girlfriend, now wife, sort of said, you know, maybe, maybe save that for graduate school, which I, I did. Uh, <laughs> and anyway, uh, so I'll just say that, you know, historically speaking, then I, I began uh, writing code and doing that sort of stuff. And I moved into philosophy because I, I realized I didn't want to research computer science stuff. That just didn't seem like an interesting avenue for me. Philosophy seemed far more interesting. And I still think that from a research perspective, philosophy is far more interesting. It just came that later on, I moved my algorithms into sort of trading high volatility assets. Uh, initially, I was looking at things that they called derivatives. Like um, it turns out volatility itself is a thing that you can trade. How how much the stock market goes up and down is a derivative and you can buy and sell that. I know it sounds crazy, but you can. It goes up and down a lot. So the volatility of volatility is high. And that's kind of where I first began developing my strategies for, for trading high volatile assets. After a certain point, I had a student of mine, very stereotypical philosophy student, uh, we'll call him Will. He was the, the pot smoking hippie kind of student who was like, Hey, professor, have you heard of this Bitcoin thing? This was in 2015. And I said, well, yes. I mean, I have friends who are software engineers. So I'd heard about it. And he said, well, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about investing. 
I also got this other thing that could give me 15% for, for certain every year. And I thought, well, I told him, I think that 15% thing for certain sounds like a scam. Nothing is certain in the investment world. So I just, I would be wary of that. I also meant him to take away that Bitcoin was crazy, a crazy scam in 2015 and that he should invest in either of those things and do something else with his money. But that's not the lesson that he took. He then departed the classroom and invested in Bitcoin. Uh, come back a year later, we compared notes on uh, how much we earned and will just destroyed me. I went to graduate school. I had a bunch of advanced training in mathematics. I'd been doing this for years and I was humbled by uh, a lackluster student in a philosophy class who didn't really understand anything about trading, anything. So that's kind of how I got it, uh, introduced into trading the crypto world. I, I then realized like, oh, well, this is actually a volatile asset. I could use the same techniques that I've been using over in stocks. I could just make more money if I moved my strategies over here. And that is how I began trading volatile assets. And that's more or less the origin of the art of the bubble. What I realized is that you can use algorithms to help you do this, but there's so, sort of an art in making judgment about it too. So that is my, my path into that. I wanted to start that as an educator for other people. And we all kind of did weird things during COVID. I accidentally became a crypto influencer during COVID. It was not by design. I just ended up getting millions and millions of views. And I was like, well, okay, so this is, this is a thing now. And that's how I ended up here. And I became interested in it because as a philosopher, I've always had these goals aimed at social justice. And I think that the cryptocurrency world, it's not a complete solution, but it gives us an opportunity to pursue some of these things. For example, one of the projects that I have I'm developing right now with another partner, uh, Sparrow Rogers, is what might be called CharityFi. The idea is to use some of the background protocol projects on decentralized finance for what is called yield farming. The simplest way to think of this is that it's like a money market account. You deposit your crypto coins and they give you a percentage yield because they're loaning them out to other people, just like a bank or something like that. The difference is that there is no bank in the middle, so the yields are a lot higher. You just get all of it back because it's a decentralized protocol. And, and that's what I really liked about it is by cutting out a lot of the bankers, people themselves can enjoy the returns. And the idea was to take charities and move their endowments onto something like this so they could get higher yields and that could probably fund their operation because the yields are so much higher. I think just came out today and I think you said on the Discord too, there's a new proposal for a 30% yield that's coming out on a protocol called Tron. This would be way in the weeds for most people, but 30% that would be a stable yield. That's a lot. I mean, for most organizations that could keep them afloat. And so we have a whole process there. We're putting together a sort of a charitable organizational process to help charities move on the blockchain and sustain their endowments and, and do good things in the world. And that's what really attra attracted me to the crypto world was, uh, you know, as in philosophy, we talk about a lot of what we should do. And in the crypto world, there's a way to act in, and realize some of those things that we would like to do. And that's why I saw the, the transition there. Right, both to educate people for sort of financial freedom, because there's a lot of interesting opportunities, and to build some projects that would actually do good things in the world. So those are the two facets that I was aiming at. It was really my interests in ethics and social justice that moved me into cryptos. You sort of answered my next question. I just want to pause, and I know I have a lot of audience members for Living Philosophy probably have no familiarity or very little familiarity with cryptocurrency and the blockchain. 
So whenever you hear the word FI, like in DeFi, just so that means that's short for finance and DeFi, which will probably come up as a term, means decentralized finance. And we'll get into a little bit of the nuts and bolts about decentralized finance. And I was originally going to ask you, uh, you know, when I met you back in, I think it was 2005, we had a, a similar interest in ethical philosophy and hermeneutics. And I had no idea about this side to you about being very mathematical, algorithmic. And I just thought you were not a bog standard ethical political philosopher, but, you know, just people in ethical political philosophy, unless they're of a certain ilk, tend not to be interested in kind of mathematics and probability. And so was it the side of philosophy that dealt with probability, things like Bayesianism uh, and more mathematical sides of, of philosophy? It just didn't appeal to you as much because it was something you were already doing? Or was it just that the ethical social justice questions just had so much more prominence and importance to you? It was really more the latter. There were some interesting questions in the philosophy of mathematics and so forth. I'm not convinced that at least I could be the person to make a difference in that area. I mean, so there are some interesting questions there about mathematical structuralism and things like that. And I worked on some of it, but that having been said, I never found those compelling. So as a, for a personal narrative, my mother's from Mexico, she's Mexicana. My father is a British heritage, but really about as American as you can get, as in my great-grandfather founded a town called Middletown between two railway stations, so Middleton, in the area that was at the time called, I think it was the Oregon Territory at that point. Later on, it became Idaho. That was the, the when it became a state. So my family has been in that area of Idaho, right around Boise, which is the capital for many, many generations. And they are about as their frontiers Americans. They go about as far back as Americans you can go. So that's my father's side. My mother's side is from Guadalajara, Mexico. So that's, you know, Guadalajara is about the second largest, maybe third, I have to look it up, uh, city in Mexico. And so I lived between those two things. And I had, you know, what motivated me into philosophy and away from becoming just a software engineer to begin with is I wanted to solve questions about what to do. So um, when I was, I guess, 11, 12, something like that, I went to visit my grandmother and she was not doing well. She had cancer. So my mother and I flew down just the day before we arrived in Guadalajara, the sewer lines blew up in the downtown area. They uh, had been leaking gas and somehow caught fire and just blew up on a Saturday morning, absolutely everywhere. And it's like 10 city blocks in a very densely packed area, killing many, many people. The government says 200 people died, but having been there the day after, it was it was clearly thousands. And uh, they would cart them away in um, dump trucks, the bodies. It was a, a it was it sort of made an impression on me, not in the sense that I was traumatized as a child, but in the sense that this area and the world is very different from the other area that I live in. And I wanted to know, I was just sort of typified the differences of my experiences. I wanted to know first how things got this way in Mexico and in other areas of the world. And second, what should we be doing about them? The first, I eventually learned an answer to the first one, how things got this way. It's it's colonialism. And okay, there's that. So the that's problem solved. Second, what do we do about it? And that's why I became interested in so ethics, social political philosophy to begin with. And so mathematics is more of a tool to solve ethical and social political problems in a precise way, not something that intrinsically interested me. Again, that's I didn't want to research computer science and I didn't want to do philosophy of math or philosophy of physics because those aren't, aren't the things that spoke to me as a person. I wanted to try to find a way to make the world better. 
which again is why the transition into cryptos was a very natural jump. It was like, oh, here's here's actually a mechanism by which we can make the world a better place. We can work on this whole new technology, which cuts out a whole bunch of financial institutions that are really just taking away money from people. And you'll hear in the background, when people talk about decentralization, just as a note, there are two things that people are decentralizing from, because we're moving away from which centralized authorities. Some people, Bitcoiners, for example, will talk about getting away from national or sovereign forms of centralization. And what you'll hear me talking about, and other DeFi people, is we tend to talk about decentralizing from existing financial institutions that have entrenched you know, effectively cast hierarchies all over the world than in the United States for a very long period of time, kind of shutting people out. So I'm more interested in decentralizing away from that system and not the sovereign system. I think that we can have functioning sovereign countries, and that makes sense. I'm not trying to decentralize away from them. I just think that we can use this new technology to get around the Jamie Diamonds of the world. Because if we can have a protocol that does everything that his bank does, but without paying his paycheck, so much the better. And, and that's really been my, my way into that. So long-winded answer to say, no, wasn't really interested in the philosophy of math either. Was re always really interested in using this stuff to make the world better. That's always where I've been going. For audience members don't know, I work part-time at uh, an outdoor retailer called REI. And it's it's fun because you have a lot of interesting people that work there, people with PhDs. Uh, and this particular person who's uh, a fly fisherman and a camper used to be a CPA and left because, well, for a lot of reasons, he couldn't stand the corporate culture, uh, the kinds of biases and prejudices that were going on. But also he was, uh, I gathered from talking with him, he was sick and tired of the way in which a lot of his clients namely very, very wealthy people, were just able to compound their wealth at basically with no effort. And he was telling me, if you have so much money, it's it's so easy to make more money. It's insane. And he was explaining the ways in which banks just favor these types of clients and how they can get lots of money at almost no interest. And so they can take that and invest it. And then obviously they're making more than whatever interest that they would have to pay on the loan and go back. And I think for everyday people like me, that was, although I knew about it when he was explaining this more in detail, I kind of, I just dropped my jaw and I could see also why he was so jaded and just decided to leave that, that whole environment, which can be very toxic and depressing and, and, and downputting as it were. But I think when people hear about cryptocurrencies, they, they tend to hear about you know, the Wild West, people making moonshot gains, you know, a thousand X on an investment. You know, certainly when I talk to people, relatives and friends, and I say I'm, I'm getting involved with some areas of cryptocurrency, you know, eyebrows raise, oh my God, is Todd part of a Ponzi scheme? Is he going to lose all his money kind of thing? So I don't know for, what for you about cryptocurrency captures or relates to the areas of social justice you're talking about and the promise of that technology maybe in, in direct contrast to all the, the stories and anecdotes about people making millions or losing millions, having the rug pulled out from under them. I'll recall a point about uh, Vitalik Buterin, the, uh, you know, one of the co-founders and developers of the Ethereum protocol, which is the number two coin out there. Um, his point, he got, he was upset at one point with uh, the success of the Board Ape Yachts Club, which is an NFT project 
that is just worth tons of money and that wealthy people buy and hence continues to appreciate. And now they've launched a coin and that's making a bunch of money too, to kind of epitomize this problem. What Vitalik didn't like about that was that, yeah, that that's not really the ethos that he was after. Uh, he was after, uh, you know, social justice transformation. That's why he limited his own ownership of uh, Ethereum rather dramatically. And he's a billionaire, but not by a lot. And he actually gave away $8 billion for other items too. So leaving him with about $1.4 billion. This is a man who, who walks the walk. The, that's the ethos that attracts me about it. And yes, you can make. And I think it's important to point out that for middle-class people, making returns that are life-transforming is a good thing. What I like about decentralized finance is that the yield opportunities there make retirement more accessible to people. Again, this is not the thousand X moonshot sort of thing that people drum on about. But look, if it's possible to use yield protocols that are relatively simple and uh, safe, you can buy insurance or whatever for them. And you can deposit your coins on them and just walk away and come back later. And we come back with a regular return, say, 20%, which is a lot. I realize that's a really good return for the stock market, but can be rather easily achieved in the in the DeFi space. You could then retire on $500,000 and live on $100,000 a year. That puts the retirement point within reach of a lot of people. Not everyone. I mean, I'm going to be clear. The promise that you keep on finding with a lot of cryptos is it doesn't solve everything. It's better. It is incrementally better, but you know, it's better in a real way. This isn't the revolution. There's a part of me that's really attracted to Marxism. And this is not revolutionary in, in that sort of sense. But I think that a series of incremental steps in the right direction on the financial front is really helpful. And so if you can do that, then you can help out a lot of people. That's That was the whole point of CharityFi is to do a similar thing to keep charities afloat. We were, we've been working with, you know, one project, which is now going to become the uh, dogs project, which will focus on canine longevity. Actually, it's going to be a big DAO. It'll be dogs DAO, and it'll bring in all these resources to kind of work on canine longevity to solve some of the problems that dogs are facing, et cetera. You may always wonder like, wait, why do dogs die so quickly and relatively speaking and and you know why don't we treat them better and that sort of stuff so it's it's a whole program there and you can do that with the crypto world but there wouldn't have been a typical avenue to do that kind of thing in i don't know traditional charitable spaces etc because endowments just don't go that far right and and right now they're all like university endowments and like they're all losing to inflation if you're make if your endowment was making four percent then this kind of environment means that you're your endowment is losing value in real dollar terms. This is why I focus a lot on yield farming and decentralized finance. That solves these problems. It solves endowment problems for charitable organizations, for universities. It puts retirement within the reach of a lot more people, not everyone, but a lot more people. That's why I'm interested in it. And yeah, there's a few little moonshot coins that are kind of fun. And you know, I've participated in a few of those and I've made some money on a few of those, but that's not my primary area of focus, uh, at least for me that's not the thing that animates me in this space. The thing that animates me in this space is the ability to transform lives. Another kind of FI is FitFi. So this is a new emerging trend in the market where you, um, rather than having those little apps that like check your how many steps you take or whatever else, and you just kind of monitor that. Well, yeah, you can do a crypto version of that, but now you get paid in crypto coins, which you can exchange for real dollars. And that's it. So now you have a monitor on your phone that still takes all of your data and monetizes it that way. 
It's the same as before. Let's be honest. And this is indicative of the kind of transformation here. It's making money just like the other forms were making money. It's just that it's now cutting you into some of that. So now you get paid a little bit for walking around your house and taking care of your steps and that sort of stuff. Whereas before, if I have my you know Fitbit or whatever else, I had to pay a bunch of money for the tech. And Fitbit doesn't pay me anything, but you know uh, protocols like Calo and Stepin and whatever they they'll pay you money for doing the exact same thing. So that's kind of cool. You know, maybe after a period of time, I'll get all the money back for my Fitbit by doing this. Great, or my version, my crypto version of Fitbit. Great. You know, I'm not going to become rich, but at least this sort of democratizes access to health protocols that will enable you to live a better life, even if you're not getting rich. Right, and that's my area of focus in the crypto world. Is not like the the moonshot everywhere. It's the, let's talk about real transformations. Maybe it's not the revolution, but real transformations that help people. And that's kind of where I'm going. I think people may have questions about how that system can actually work. And if I understand correctly, these kinds of organizations are what they call DAOs, uh, which is D-A-O, which is an acronym for a decentralized autonomous organization. And under that kind of organization, the users are also the investors. So if you find a DAO that offers something that you think has utility or offers utility and something you can get on board with in terms of their mission and their aim, then buying their coins and participating in it is a way to support it as well as to earn money back because it's decentralized. There's no person or group of people that are aiming just to get the profit as you would with normal companies like Fitbit or or Google. Yeah, that's usually it. And I mean, people always wonder about like, how isn't this a Ponzi scheme? I was just talking to one of my uh, childhood friends yesterday. Uh, you know, he's 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 sort of a crypto skeptic and uh, and a software engineer. So I, he's sharp on a lot of points and I appreciate his point of view. So I was explaining the FitFi thing to him and he said, well, okay, fine. The reason it works is because it is using traditional forms of monetization. It's just that by eliminating, yes, you have a DAO structure and by eliminating that central authority there, you get paid back a little bit. Okay. So it, it isn't like really crazy new stuff, typically speaking. They're still taking your geolocation data and monetizing it by selling it to ad to other agencies that'll that'll send you ads. Okay. They're still doing the same thing. Okay. It's just that unlike Google or Facebook, when they do this, they don't Google doesn't pay me, has never paid me anything for using its apps. Neither has Facebook. These will. Maybe it's not a lot, but it's something. And that's that's sort of the difference there. Uh, another way that they can kind of cut in, and it depends on the DAO structure for this, but you can sometimes organize, you can put the, your DAO together with the yield farming stuff. So they get a treasury, people buy into it, and then they kind of grow that treasury through yield farming. And that they can use the yield off of that to pay users continuously. And that's kind of cool too for their participation. So there's a few ways that they can do it. It isn't all in short, that, like that last example is a crypto native solution that doesn't exist outside of him. So just to be clear, there are two ways that this works. One of them is they use completely old tech and they just cut you in a little bit. Or sometimes they can combine that with these new yield farming techniques to, which is native to crypto and cut users and give them some earnings on that basis too. But by and large, what you're getting is marginal cost uh, advantages since you don't have to pay a bunch of people to do all the overhead and whatever else, the smart contracts take care of that. And that's where that additional gap of money comes from. And hence they can afford to pay users to participate in the protocol and use it that way. That's what's at stake here. So, you know, when, when you hear a lot of wild claims, people say things like you get 
paid to play video games or you get paid to move. That's, that's the FitFi thing. It's paid to move. Great. Um, where does that even come from? The answer is it, it's a mix of old stuff with some new stuff, but it's primarily old stuff, just kind of reorganized. It's the innovation is around the legal organizational structure with a DAO and less around the tech in many cases. In a previous conversation, you gave a great analogy about how, you know, when the internet first came out, we talked about it as if, no, it's not going to happen. And now we don't really even refer to it. It's so embedded in what we do when we want to go find a restaurant or find out how to get somewhere. We just, we use it and don't think about it. It becomes transparent in that way that the German philosopher Martin Heidegger would, would talk about. And you said for people to understand what's going on with cryptocurrency and blockchain and NFTs, all this kind of weird language, you were saying it's probably going to be the case in five to 10 years. We know we won't even use those terms anymore. We're just going to go on using the services that uh, the blockchain technology provides. And you said we're currently at the MS-DOS stage of cryptocurrency and blockchain. And for those people who don't know what MS-DOS is, if you can go back to the 1980s, if you weren't born before then, but it was basically to do anything, you had to enter code into the computer in order to do something. And if you didn't remember that code, then you couldn't do it. Whereas when Windows 3.0 or 3.1 came out, whatever it was, you could just mm -hmm. click on the icon and then that would initiate the code sort of in the background. And so you gave this analogy, that's where we're at, we're at the MS-DOS stage. Things are very difficult for people to grasp conceptually. And that's also because things are hard to do uh, practically, especially if you're someone like me, who's not very tech oriented. So are, with that in mind, are there any, at the, at the current state of cryptocurrency and the blockchain, what for you are the technological pitfalls that you have identified and hope become resolved over the next five, 10 years? So I've been focusing so much on the legal ones right now, but yeah, the, the tech ones tend to be on, um, so, okay, why is the user experience and end user interfaces, why are they so terrible? It's That question's worth pursuing for a little bit, because mostly if you you go, you buy your coins on a centralized exchange, which is a lot like a stock market. You then have to send your coins off that into these other things called wallets. These wallets are not easy to use and operate on their own. I had to walk my father through like all the whole step process for this. And he was fine with it, but you know, he needed somebody to walk him through. And then there's the worry that if you send something the wrong way, your money goes poof, which is a real possibility. So the user experience is terrible. And why is it this bad? The answer is because you can't use it. Cryptos can't directly interface with our existing financial technologies well. And the reason for that is that a lot of them don't meet the processing standards of, say, it's what's called a, an EMV standard, which is the MasterCard uh, Visa standard for process transactions. And if you could come up with a blockchain that did meet those standards and could move coins along, then merchants would be assured that, okay, this works. And then people could effectively swipe a card and exchange cryptos at that point, provided enough merchants accepted it. Most merchants don't accept cryptos at this point because the transactions aren't up to existing industry standards. So the tech has to cross a specific barrier on the merchant processing side in order for it to be usable in ordinary life. And it hasn't crossed that yet.
I was just on a call with a, a team that has a proposal, and I don't know for sure if it'll work out, but I think they have a way to maybe solve that side of things and, and to do it in a decentralized way. Right? So there are some proposals like PayPal allows you to use some Bitcoin or whatever else, but those are all centralized authorities. Like maybe Visa or MasterCard develops their own cryptos, fine. But they're doing it again in a centralized way, and then you're not getting any of the advantages of blockchain. The whole point of blockchain is to cut out those people so we achieve marginal cost advantages and can do cool things like yield farm, and then we can retire earlier or whatever else, or get paid for moving around our houses. Those things can't be achieved if they're done through centralized authorities because the centralized authorities take all of the extra money. So you have to find decentralized solutions to that, and none of the tech has been up to industry standards for merchant processing. Etc. So nobody's taking it on, and hence there are all of these barriers, right? So that has to change. You know, people can develop cool apps and things like that. Divi has a pretty useful app. There are a few other projects that have pretty useful apps. But until we get to the processing side of things, the onboarding and offboarding of cryptos is going to be a massive barrier. And what we're seeing right now is the early adopters via banking institutions, but that is not retail early adoption. Right. Or like, or rather, I should say, if you look at the adoption curve, you like the early majority, there are two things in the middle of an adoption curve. For those people who aren't familiar with the adoption curve idea, the idea is whenever new technology comes out, um, some people jump on board and other people wait. And the people who jump on board tend to be called, and I'm simplifying here, they're called their early adopters in some phase. Then there's a chasm because sometimes the early adopters jump on that new thing, Zoom or whatever, and it never materializes. Um, it doesn't turn into something long-term. I think Microsoft actually developed the first version of like a, an iPad or something like that a long time ago and nobody liked it. Okay. It, it doesn't cross a chasm of adoption. It kind of falls away. If it does jump over that chasm of adoption, then you, you get that like early majority of people who use it. What we're finding right now with cryptos is that banks are finally moving into this space, like uh, BlackRock world's largest asset manager is moving into this space, but they're doing it in a sophisticated way. They can afford to hire literal teams of people to onboard their money. That's not early adoption for retail people. That just isn't. We're not there yet. And we won't be there until the tech is there. On the banking side, there's some other, like the institutional side, there's some other stuff that we could get really technical on this, but they don't have um, custodialization. So typically large institutions don't trust, say you want to, say you want to invest in a hedge fund. Great. You don't want to trust the hedge fund to hold your money because, you know, they could just up and run. That's what Bernie Madoff did. You, you know, didn't have independent reporting standards and he held all of his own money. And that's how he scammed all his investors. So you want to make sure that it's held by some other trusted third party and that it's third party independently verified, that sort of stuff. Okay. The custodialization for cryptos right now is pretty limited. It's limited to uh, the most advanced form of it. It's through copper.co and that's limited to Ethereum and Polygon. So two blockchain projects. So for big institutional investors to get into the crypto space, they have massive limitations. So the custodialization side of things also needs to be solved. So those are two tech things that I think need to be solved for broader adoption right now. One of them is the user experience on the retail side, and that will be solved once you get a blockchain project with transactions that meet the standards uh, like MasterCard and Visa, the EMV standards. On the institutional side, we need more custodialization uh, options uh, and security. I mean, too much is 
so much stuff gets hacked. Like every, literally, I mean, you're there with me. You can see like literally every day, another protocol gets hacked. It's like, oh yeah, somebody else lost another $125 million or whatever. That can't happen for large banks to invest their, that can't be a thing in the future. That just can't be a thing. Before large institutions get more into that space, we're going to need to hammer that stuff out. And that's going to mean more custodialization. And that's just going to take, it's happening, but it's going to take maybe three to five years. Living Philosophy is brought to you by philosophytoyou.com, your public and applied philosophy hotspot for innovation, inspiration, and intelligence. Are you unhappy with your academic career? Do you need help transitioning to the next chapter? Hillary Hutchinson is a career coach specializing in helping academics leave academia. Academia is an unusual place with extremely rigid standards for promotion and due to structural issues with severely limited opportunities. The decision to leave academia can happen at any time in an academic career, whether just graduating with a PhD, deciding mid-career that the academic lifestyle or work content no longer appeals, or even figuring out what to do on retiring after a long academic career. Let Hillary help you now to figure out who you are, what you want to do, and start putting a strategic plan into place to achieve your own dreams. It's not about who you are. It's about who you want to be. Contact Hillary at transitioningyourlife.com or call 843-225-3224 to set up a complimentary appointment and find out more about how she works with clients. In this bold new book, The Infinite Staircase, What the Universe Tells Us About Life, Ethics, and Mortality, high-tech's best-known strategist Jeffrey Moore makes a groundbreaking contribution to the search for meaning in a secular era. Two questions fundamental to human existence have always been the metaphysical, where do I fit in the grand scheme of things, and the ethical, how should I behave? Religion is no longer a source of answers for many people, and nothing has replaced it. Moore uses his signature framework-based approach to answer these questions, taking readers on an intellectual roller coaster ride through physics, chemistry, biology, the social sciences, and the humanities. Along the way, he builds a metaphorical ladder that leads from the Big Bang to the need for ethical action in our daily lives. Combining an extraordinary range of scholarship with an accessible and entertaining writing style, The Infinite Staircase provides a coherent and unified platform for a full human life. The Infinite Staircase is available everywhere fine books are sold. Order your copy today. Understanding and relating to other people is key to the success of individuals and organizations, but doing so can be difficult and involves more art than science. Fortunately, there is a branch of philosophy called hermeneutics that explores how we can better understand and relate to others according to the stories we tell, what we say, and the histories and cultures that form who we are. Hermeneutics in real life is an online project that hosts virtual conversations with academics and professionals discussing how hermeneutics matters to our work and our lives and how it can be a catalyst for positive change. The conversations assume no prior background in hermeneutics and are hosted monthly, open to everyone and free of charge. To learn more about participating in these conversations, please visit our website at www.theletterh.com the letter N, the letter R, the letter L.org. That's www.hinrl.org.
there's a bit of advice that uh, uh, sort of a plug for the art of the bubble and the education services it offers. And one of the mantras or mottos is go slow. And um, for myself, even learning with cryptocurrencies, I've made quite a few mistakes. Well, not quite a few. I've made a few mistakes and one of them, you know, head banging mistakes. Like, I can't believe I just did that. You know, the, the problem of sending money and it just disappears. Uh, you know, one incident, I'm, I'm happy sharing this with my audience members. It wasn't a lot of money because you always go slow. So you move a small amount of money to see what happens. And luckily it was small. And I thought I had copied my wallet address, but I actually no. had the contract, the contract address for the coin instead. And so oh, when yeah. I sent that, oh. it was like, wait a minute. Oh no. And then, so that money was gone. We've all done things like that. And there are other little things. Another project that I was advising on was, uh, uh, NFT fakes. And uh, that one immediately got me. You go, you're trying to buy an NFT and somebody else has inevitably just made fake versions of it. And it's really hard to distinguish the two. You have to find the original studio as opposed to the fake studio, and they will look very, very similar. You actually have to be able to go back into the contract origination process to see who made this. Okay. It's a terrible thing. Like nobody's going to really go back on their own unless you have sophisticated people. Nobody's going to go back and be like, oh, well, of course, check the contract origination address and then you'll figure it out. Like that is never going to be a mass adoption thing. So what you need is another protocol that can tell you this is for real, this isn't, and that just runs all the time. So for NFTs to really go mainstream, and I know they've been in the like the broader media landscape a lot, but like now nobody, not not enough people are buying them yet because it it isn't safe. I myself have bought some fake stuff, and that's why I'm very aware of that. You make the mistake one time, you're like, oh. I will never do that again. Like, even though it cost me like $200, it's like, that was, that was okay. That was an education and I'll never do that again. But uh, these sorts of pitfalls are sort of everywhere in in the crypto landscape. And there's a lot of maturing that still has to go on. I I try to put this one in context too. So I think the cryptocurrency world is about $2 trillion in total market cap. If you summed up like the value of all of the tokens out there, it hit about 2 trillion. Apple's at like what? 2.8 2.8 trillion. The whole cryptocurrency world is w- worth maybe 60% what, or 66, a little better, 70%, 70% of, of Apple. That's it. 70% of one stock. That's like all of the cryptos combined. So uh, some people worry that they're too late to the cryptocurrency world. And I'm like, no, not even close. We're 70% to the way of one stock. So uh, it's very early and hence there are tons of pitfalls. There's also a lot of skepticism regarding how long or how successful the whole decentralization uh, project could be for for cryptocurrencies and the blockchain uh, platforms and networks. And Scott Galloway is one of the most prominent critics that I've read. He's been very articulate. He's very well informed. And I'm probably going to do a terrible job trying to summarize one of the concerns he has. And I've seen it elsewhere as well. So although this blockchain technology and, and networks and platforms and protocols might be decentralized, they still have a long way to go to to achieve total decentralization, obviously, but also because they're decentralized, it actually allows big players to come in, organizations or corporations to come in and control that space. And one of the comments is right now, as you know, it's it's still early times, as you pointed out, but much of it's controlled by so-called crypto whales who hold a lot of assets and investments. And then now that we see banks like, uh, or financial institutions like BlackRock coming in, there is a kind of worry that somehow this landscape and the viability of decentralization is, is going to change drastically. And it might be just 
more of the same old thing that we're used to. Do you have any concerns about that or any answers? There is a rhetorical asymmetry between the challenge and the kind of response that can be made. You can pose a general challenge. The challenge is general. The response can't be uh, symmetrically general. So that doesn't count against what I want to underscore is that doesn't count against the strength of the response. It's just a feature of the discussion. It's a rhetorical feature of the discussion, right? So um, not being able to produce a general response is not the same thing as not having a response. Um, okay. So the thing that I would say is, because it, it's impossible, it's in principle possible in short, but you know, in fact, it's a different matter. Maybe you could call the challenge, the, uh, I don't know, VC capture problem. Is Andreessen Horowitz or some similar venture capital firm going to just capture or recapture the cryptocurrency world so that we get the equivalent of, you know, Amazon and Facebook and Google, but now just in cryptos. I think the response depends on how the protocols are built. Some protocols are far more vulnerable to that than others. ETH, for example, isn't. It's well done. The major founders kind of gave away all their ETH. You can buy ETH, but that doesn't mean that you control Ethereum. Curve, 70% of that was held back by the founder. So that's a centralized project. It really depends. or And how the mechanics of governance are Im implemented, that's another feature. If you just one vote, like one coin, one vote sort of approach, well, then Andreessen Horowitz can go ahead and buy a whole bunch of votes. That's the, the criticism of the American political system is it's how many dollars you have that vote, not people. There's a worry that the way, if you set up your DAOs that way, you're going to get that same problem. So there are two key things there. How the development team launches their coin can be more or less susceptible to VC capture and how governance is implemented implemented can be more or less susceptible. You'll just have to go case by case. In some cases like Ethereum, I think we'll be all right. In other cases, Curve, clearly not. I mean, that's how it is. I, I mean, I spend a lot of my time thinking about DAOs because in some ways, although not an immediate cryptocurrency development, they do use smart contracts, but they're really more of a legal structure innovation and uh, a corporate innovation, the first major corporate innovation since LLCs for sure, drastically more flexible, but they also have limitations and we're still trying to figure out how to organize them. That means that you have to be careful in how they're organized. And just as some firms can be more, you know, traditional corporations can be more aggressive than others. It depends on how they, they implement their corporate hierarchies, share buybacks, et cetera, worker participation, all of that stuff. It can vary quite a bit from one firm to another. So I, I think the worry is there. I, I guess the only thing that I can say as a general response is, I see right now no systemic reason, that is no series of incentives that is like objectively out there about the way that cryptocurrencies work that will inherently centralize. I don't see anything the other way either, incidentally. You could say the only thing that's going to inherently centralize is not cryptos, but maybe capitalism. So the incentive structure might be in capitalism to towards centralization. But that's a critique of capitalism and not a critique of cryptos. Another big topic for people who are interested in climate change is something called proof of work. Right. And um, so I think it's an important issue to address since it keeps on cropping up. And Bitcoin uh, is basically based on proof of work. In fact, most protocols are. And for those who don't understand what proof of work is, because transactions that occur on the blockchain are public and decentralized, they're not governed by any one person or organization as, as we talked about, but the transactions still need to be verified by individuals. And the most common method of doing this is called proof of work. 
where people called miners, I'm sure people have heard of Bitcoin miners, these miners verify transactions on the blockchain. So if you buy or send money to another person as in a digital transfer, instead of a bank approving and confirming the request, which can take days, uh, blockchain miners verify the transactions in a matter of seconds or minutes. But the criticism of proof of work, this proof of work is that it takes a great deal of computational and therefore energy resources. And I found this interesting quote from an article by Forbes just this month, April 2022, quote, if Bitcoin were a country, it would rank in the top 30 worldwide for energy use. That's roughly enough electricity to power countries with populations in the tens of millions with an environmental burden of an estimated 34 megatons of carbon emissions or more, according to Digiconomist Bitcoin Energy Consumption Index, end quote. So because of this, people are very critical about cryptocurrencies in general if they need to rely on proof of work. And we've just seen that there's been some rumors about uh, Europe, uh, EU, European Union legislators wanting to ban cryptocurrencies that rely on proof of work because of this environmental liability. So what are your thoughts on the current scenario with how proof of work is understood? It's a big topic because I'm, you know, as an ethicist, I'm also interested in environmental ethics. You know, I received grants for my work in that space. So it's long been a concern for me. I do tend to, I will put this preface it, I incline towards the position which holds the Bitcoin is the coal of the cryptocurrency world. That is the critique and there is something to it. The main idea behind proof of work is that you force the blockchain validators to make enough of a financial commitment to validating the blockchain and hence getting paid back in the crypto, not to want to undermine it. That's really the point of it. And that's why proof of stake just said, well, fine, let's just have them put up a bunch of coins. Now they're invested. Why do all the additional computing power? You don't need to do any of that. The first one said, you have to devote so much computing power to it that you're, you're invested in the blockchain now, uh, and you are, but it's sort of why would you do that? And the thing that they're that they're computing, and this is the real key, the thing that they're computing is just a, a number. You'll hear about hashes, and hashes are um, functions that aren't reversible realistically, uh, except by guessing. So what you need is a brute force algorithm that just guesses random numbers. Now, the number is huge. It's an absolutely huge number, and so these computers make many, many guesses a second, billions. And they put warehouses of these things together and they compete. The first person to guess to get the number gets to verify the block and hence gets paid Bitcoin. That's how it works. But it is just a massive guessing game. And so viewed from a compute perspective, it's one of the most massive wastes of computing power you could imagine. And that is why I think Bitcoin is the coal of the cryptocurrency world sort of sticks in a way. I'll come back to the way that it doesn't. But the inherent method by which it uses proof of work is useless. Right? Now, if you had a different crypto project where they use that compute power to do something, then you would eliminate the criticism. Because if all of that compute power was going to making the world a better place, then you couldn't criticize it for not doing something useful in the world. The real heart of the criticism sticks with the fact that Bitcoin is just guessing and it's wasted compute power. I'm in fact working with another team that is going to propose a proof of work blockchain that trains AI algorithms on, you know, that's what the blockchain is for, is it trains AI algorithms. And so hence the compute power goes to doing something useful in the world, like detecting cancer and stuff like that. It's pretty darn useful. You can't say that that is a waste of 
compute power at that point. And that's a kind, so they're calling that proof of AI. So proof of the compute power that you've put towards training AI algorithms, that would be a good thing. And, and that's a proof of work. And that's where I think that these uh, legislative processes, like the thing that's proposed in the EU, have gone far too quickly. This, they're written by people who understand nothing about it or next to nothing about the protocols. Proof of work is a vast domain of blockchain computing, and it could be incredibly beneficial to incentivize people to, I don't know, devote a lot of their computing power to AI, training AI algorithms that could help us solve a bunch of problems in the world. Like It could be a great incentive, and you're just outlawing it. It's a terrible idea. So two broad of strokes written by people who don't understand the blockchain. That's my, my main point on that. Now, let's go back to Bitcoin. In all of this, I haven't rescued Bitcoin. There is a way in which Bitcoin could be and we have to come up with, there's a bad actor problem. Okay. So bad actors are like people going around buying up old coal plants, like literally old coal plants, firing them up and then burning coal to make energy, which is just the worst. Um, in that sense, Bitcoin is the coal of the cryptocurrency world is literal. So those are bad actors and we need to find a way to penalize that. But there are possible good actors. So first of all, you have a lot of compute power. You're incentivized to find the cheapest electricity, which does tilt towards finding more sustainable sources of electricity on balance. And so it does incentivize the development and the discovery of more green energy. The other thing that it does is that there is a lot of wasted energy right now. People don't know how a lot of, like, say, uh, oil refineries work, but they, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but they have this thing where they're like blowing fire off in the air. They're just burning stuff. Okay. So that is just wasted energy because they can't afford to put it back into the system. What if instead they took that energy and used it to mine Bitcoin? Now we've found something that was totally wasted before and made it slightly less wasted. Uh, that would be like a, a use case where even Bitcoin would be preferable to the system that we have at present. Because at least it, under that scenario, you would be securing a blockchain, which does help a whole bunch of other processes along so great. The case against Bitcoin is more complicated. The case against uh, proof of work, I think, is just naive. People who simply don't know what's going on. Their views can be demonstrated as false within a minute or two. Bitcoin takes about maybe five minutes to explain why it could possibly be a little bit better. None of, the, none of this, incidentally, I think fits into a tweet yet, which is maybe why it's not getting any traction. But Bitcoin itself is, yeah, that's why it's a mixed bag. It has the potential to uh, incentivize better uses of the energy that we have. The biggest thing, if we could find a way to like, I don't know, force, like get the KlimaDAO, which buys a bunch of carbon credits to sort of somehow interact with a blockchain group so that all blockchain verifiers that are verifying blockchain using coal or something have to buy carbon credits to offset it. Then we've closed the loop out because then those plants don't become like, there's no financial reason to go to those plants to start up your crypto project. In short, if we had carbon, like a carbon credit system, generally speaking, uh, that would, I think, on its own, just like at a national level. This is why, again, I don't want to decentralize away from national sovereign governments. If we passed something like a, a carbon credit cap, that would kill the worst actors 
in the Bitcoin mining space. And that would leave mostly just the incentivization towards better, more green energy uses going forward. And I think that would make a, a better defense of Bitcoin. Again, I'm not really a super huge Bitcoin fan, but I think that would make it a better defense. Looking forward to the next five to 10 years, what is the best case scenario you can see for blockchain and cryptocurrency? And what is the worst case scenario you can see? Best case scenario is that most of the bloated and inefficient firms out there are outcompeted that centralize a lot of our money in the hands of a few sort of uh, banking elites and that they are that Jamie Dimon doesn't have a job that we've effectively replaced JP Morgan Chase that it's all on the blockchain now and that people can get all their banking without that stuff and they can get loans without it and everything else and there's just no bankers in the middle taking all of that stuff and then people can go do other things also people are retiring earlier because they don't have to work as long and we can compensate people for doing more meaningful work in their lives rather than just exchanging their time for money, which when you think about you know, from an efficiency perspective, exchanging your time for money, like, uh, philosophically considered is a waste, sort of by definition, not helping you live a better life. So if we can reduce that, uh, for me as a philosopher, I think that's a net gain. And I, I think that could happen and it would be better, or at least people are now compensated for doing a lot of things that they're ordinarily doing. It would be weird, but maybe they're getting compensated by moving around and playing a video game and, you know, like, I don't know, participating in a variety of communities. And all of a sudden this kind of pays them back for the stuff that they're doing. So it neutralizes a lot of the costs people have in their lives and actually gives them some money just by interacting on an ordinary basis. Wouldn't it be nice if every time you used Facebook, you actually got paid something, that sort of stuff. So there may be a way in which a lot of the money that we're spending on other protocols gets returned back to us and the big centralized authorities are, are significantly attenuated in their grasp of our world. I think that would have a net positive effect also in helping our political system work better because we wouldn't have such massively centralized agents that can more or less overwhelm senators. It doesn't cost a lot in the United States, for example, to buy a senator, realistically speaking. Um, you don't have to spend, like if you're a $10 million donor, you're a significant donor and your voice gets heard. But you know, for a company that has a trillion dollars in assets under management, 10 million bucks is not a lot. It's a, it's a rounding error. Our system is incredibly fragile relative to the amount of financial power out there, which is why a few people control it. If we're able to get rid of that centralization of the financial power, I think we'll also, the, net, the other net benefit will be a more functioning political system, right? Where people have to represent something other than the interests of a very small number of wealthy individuals. So th that's the best upside for things. The, the, worst, the worst side of this is, I don't know, the ignorant win out. Cryptos are made illegal and we all go back to TradFi and you know the exploitation of the masses under the same effective system that Mark that Marx uh, identified. Nothing has effectively changed in the financial system otherwise since the late 1900s. That would be the bad side. All of this other stuff kind of just gets closed down. I could see that could happen. They could just say, no cryptos, we won't allow you to do it. China has done something like that. The main central authorities keep their power. It reminds me of how complex our world is. I know that sounds like a truism, but you know, Simone de Beauvoir came out with her seminal book, The Second Sex and argued for uh, gender equality under the first condition had to be economic equality. So women had to be economically free. And you mentioned that today in some settings and they'll dismiss that as a naive idea that there are other more important issues having to do with gender equality that are more substantial. But you know, in the discussion that we've just had and what you've explained, it just reminds us how important it is that financial freedom, I, you know, I don't like that phrase because it's been used so much, but 
how essential it is in terms of a capability to allow other human capabilities to flourish. And I think maybe a, a deeper philosophical understanding of financial freedom would help even out the landscape right now where you get a lot of people just shouting from the rooftops about how important it is to um, be financially liberated in some sense. And those people, I, it's off-putting for me just because those people tend to confuse financial freedom with the idea of a totally free market. I won't go down that rabbit hole. Um, I've said <laughs> enough on Coracos, but it's a, yeah. there is no such thing as a, as a free market. Um, it's always backed, as you put it in another post, bullets behind dollars kinds of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, on that note, I want to turn to your other specialization in philosophy, and that is in Aztec philosophy. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of people will probably just see that interest as merely a trivial historical interest, because what on earth could Aztec philosophy offer us today in terms of any kind of insight or edification with respect to human flourishing and ethics? For me, you have to remember that like the crypto stuff is directed at the ethical goal and social goal. So then you have to ask like, well, what is your ethical view? And I've been, you know, actively working in the field of ethics and political philosophy for a while. And there's there's a hubris built into the uh, way philosophy is practiced in the West, especially in our Western academy, which is I'm going to go off, sit in an armchair and think about ideas that nobody's ever thought of. And they're going to be the awesomest and the bestest stuff. And I'm going to transform the world this way. I tend to think that, well, maybe... One of the pitfalls there is, is is that you grew up in a culture and a society, and your imagination will be sort of trapped into that. Like imagination traps are a real problem, and they're difficult to think outside of because you don't know how your imagination is limited. There's one move in philosophy to do a lot of experimental stuff, which I think makes sense. And the other move is to look like let's just go global and see if there aren't other historical cultures. Like why we why have we only been looking at ancient Greece and Rome? I was trained in that too, but why not also look at other global cultures to see if other people have done things successfully in a way that we never would have imagined otherwise. So the interesting thing that I found about the Aztecs, and just please put any preconceptions you have about them off to the side, because through no fault of your own, you've probably heard a version of history that was written by the Spaniards who had direct interests in demonizing the populations in order to legitimate their political claims. There's a direct conflict of interest in their in their claims, right? And they were successful in their propaganda. So almost everything that everyone has heard about Mesoamerica, the Aztecs, and the Maya is typically way, way off base. And until we change our system of education, that's nobody's fault exactly. I'm not saying that if you don't know more about the Aztecs, you're at fault or something like that. I'm just saying you're, you're probably your views are probably false or skewed very badly through no fault of your own. Part of what I'm trying to do is correct a massive cultural misconception there. So the project itself is sort of one of cultural justice. Uh, saying that a, a culture was philosophical is an honorific of a sort. Societies that were considered philosophical are advanced enough to deem some societies non-philosophical is immediately to kind of rule them out of the ranks of advanced societies. So even just making the case that the Aztecs were a philosophical society does some work to remediate cultural injustice. The um, truth is, is that we've had thousands of pages of Aztec philosophy for a long time, for since the conquest, about 500 years, and nobody was reading it. I just finished a translation of the Discourses of the Elders, which is more or less the Aztec equivalent of Confucius's Analects. It's the first time it's been translated into English, and it's been around since 1538, and it's the world's first philosophical translation in any modern language. It's just massive cultural bias that's behind. I, I don't know any other way to explain it, but massive cultural bias that has prevented 
us from recognizing that there's a whole living philosophical tradition here recorded in lots of books that we could read. It's just obvious. And then there's the feature of, um, well, okay, what did they say? And I could summarize some of the stuff that I have in my forthcoming book through Norton, but it'll be in the spring of 2023 called uh, The Rooted Life. Also, my translation of the Discourses of the Elders will be through Norton Press. So lesson number one from the Aztecs on that is, look, you're not actually after happiness. You just think that you are. I know for Americans where we have this thing like the pursuit of happiness written into our founding documents, that seems very counterintuitive, but that's the point of studying other cultures. Maybe we're wrong about that. So what were the reasons for saying that we're not actually after happiness, we just think that we are? And there's a passage where a father tells his daughter exactly this. She's come of age. These are wisdom discourses where you have like a father telling a son or a mother telling a daughter or whatever else, older people telling younger people. That's what discourses of the elders are, kind of how to live. And it's a genre, like a dialogue is a genre for Plato. And so the father tells his daughter, look, you know how things are in life now, people experience pain or happiness and fatigue, happiness and pain. It doesn't, not one on their own. It's a sort of cycle of stuff. If happiness means elevated emotional states, those come and go. One transitions into another, and that's just kind of the way it is. It doesn't even make sense to aim at being happy in the sense of always positive emotions. That's like trying to aim to be tall. It's just not a thing. It's not under your volition as a person. The reason we get misguided is because we think that because happiness feels good and we think we want more of it. So let me give you two thought experiments that are very much in line with the Aztecs. One of them is, I do this for my students. One of them is Odysseus, which I think says something about the ancient Greeks before Plato and Aristotle, incidentally. So this is Homer. He is at this stage, I think it's book five of the Odyssey. He's been living on an island with the nymph goddess Calypso. And he's been there. The reason it took Odysseus 10 years to get home after the Trojan Wars is that he spent seven of them on this island paradise with a goddess. He, he got a little distracted, let's be honest here. It was good for a bit, but he wanted to leave and she wouldn't let him leave. And so finally he was wailing and crying. The gods take pity on him. They send Hermes to go talk to uh, Calypso and she sits down at a table with Hermes and Hermes says, like, look, you have to let him go. She says, fine, on one condition, let me give, give me one more chance to convince him. And the next scene, Odysseus is sitting where Hermes was. And he says, I want to go. And she said, fine, but if you stay, I will give you immortality and agelessness. And he's on a paradise island, so he will never have to work. He has the company of a beautiful goddess. He will never die and he will never age. Next scene, Odysseus is out in the woods chopping. He's out chopping up wood to go on a raft back home. He would literally rather die on a raft voyaging back home to see his wife and child than live in an island paradise with a goddess forever. It's a very Aztec point. And the point is you're actually after a worthwhile life, not after elevated emotional states. So think of it this way. Let's go to the next step in this. You are uh, helping clean out your grandmother's attic after she passes and you find a silver lamp. For fun, you decide to rub the said lamp. A genie pops out and says, Great. Thanks for releasing me. Now, it doesn't work like the movies. I can't really change everything. It's, it's not like magic like that. Here's what I can do. And by way of thanks, I can put a billion dollars in account, like a bank account for you. I can whisk you off to another area of the world where you will. I can guarantee that you will live forever and you will never age. And there will be a romantic partner there waiting for you who's 
a wonderful person and beautiful, and they will also share their lives with you. The one thing you have to give up is that a nobody in this life will ever know what happened to you. Your dog can't go with you. Notice Odysseus. No, the dog was the only thing that recognized him when he first came back, right? Your dog can't go with you. None of your friends and family will know what happened to you. They will think you just disappeared and we can't do anything else. You can never contact them again because as soon as you do, I have to take all of this back. It only works if you disappear. How many of you would be willing to just poof away from all of your friends and family and pets to go live somewhere else to have a lot more money and live forever? There's a few students in my classes who tend to say things like, eh, I don't really like my family that much anyway, but that's like one out of 30. Overwhelmingly, people are like, no, actually what I get is I couldn't leave my dog behind. That's the one I get the most. You can see how that works. And and that I think underscores, yeah, we're actually right there with Odysseus. We would make the same choice. Odysseus voluntarily chooses to leave Eden, unlike the biblical story, right? He's not kicked out. He leaves. He leaves because there's a more meaningful worthwhile life over there. And that's actually what we're after. The Aztecs called that the rooted life. There's a lot of metaphors that they use, but translated, my suggestion is it's the rooted life. It's the good life. It's a life where you're rooted in a certain kind of area with friends and family and rich relations. We have you know, meaningful relationships and meaningful work, and it's going towards some end and you live well. And you know what? That's why we have children. Uh, for the people who want to have children, they recognize the other thing I do is I give them all these studies on how children make you miserable or at least less happy than you were before children. And Todd, neither, neither of us actually have kids yet, but or are even planning to. But for those people who do have children, the, the thing is, is that it's a sacrifice. I, I, tell, I lay out all the stats for my students. My students, you know, I never convince them. After I lay out the stats that show you effectively, we have, th- what is it, three, four longitudinal studies that took over 30 years to conduct that found that uh, children always lower a couple's levels of happiness until the last child leaves the house. The students still want to have kids. And I think that just shows like, well, they value something more than elevated emotional states. If you're willing, like Odysseus, to stay with your family, or you're willing to have children, then you honestly value something more in your life than elevated emotional states, which means you are not after happiness. You just think you are. That's lesson one of Aztec ethics. I have like a 15 lesson series on that, um, which is more or less what the book consists in. But it's insights like these that I think are pretty worthwhile for us and, and fairly valuable and that serve as a corrective to the existing cultural institutions that we have. And hence, why I spent a bunch of time. I, why did I learn Nahuatl? Like in part, yes, it was my grandmother spoke Nahuatl. So it was a way to get kind of back in touch with historical roots and that sort of stuff. But in part, it was a lot of work. In part, it was to unearth a tradition that had something to say about how to live and how to live well. And that maybe our whole society is geared around a different point of view. So you would never imagine your way out of it. You just have to go do the work of finding other people who thought differently and reflecting on it. And that was my interest in Aztec philosophy. And I hope it's actually clear. There is a convergence here with cryptos. Cryptos are a means to a better life. I've also been thinking really hard about what a better life is. So they go together. They maybe seem schizophrenic to people on the outside, but to my mind, I'm, I'm it's the same project. It is really the same project. Because how flexible, dynamic, and unpredictable cryptocurrency and decentralized finance are, it could enable us to imagine things or how our life might go apart from these you know, uh, ideas that are ingrained by what you're calling traditional finance. So it's an interesting perspective uh, and prospect. 
I've reached that point in the podcast where I get to ask my guests the two closing questions. And the first one, Sebastian, is has there been any one philosopher or philosophy that has been central to your research as well as the way you have lived your life? and continue to do so. I wouldn't have been a philosopher if it weren't for Aristotle. Among the Western philosophers that I find to be maybe most actionable in my life, maybe Marcus Aurelius. Stoicism in general is pretty actionable. I developed in a series of public kind of pieces on Medium, sort of a convergence between Stoicism and Aztec philosophy, because I think that they have complementary approaches to living well. The Stoics start from the inside out, about taming your mind and doing those sorts of things in order to live well, a little bit like Buddhism. Whereas the Aztecs say like, look, actually the path to a rooted life is to organize the people around your life in the right way, because your mind is chaos. You're never going to master that stuff. You would do better to start with the people around you, organize them, and then kind of use that to control your mind. You know, so you can see other complementary approaches. And that's kind of what I was working on in Aztec Stoicism in a way. Uh, well, the one person in the West was Aristotle, but really actionably, it was the Stoics and hence and now the Aztecs in life. I will also say I've spent a bunch of time uh, reading Paul Ricoeur because I thought he was just sort of, he gave me a way to think through things reflectively. He's, of course, the professor of Emmanuel Macron, the current president of France. There's a habit of reflection that I gained from reading Ricoeur's work that I found to be extremely useful. And do you have any parting words of wisdom for our audience, such as what moonshot to invest in? No. <laughs> FitFi, go for FitFi. Yeah, I think that right now there's just, you got to be aware of the cryptocurrency world and the kind of, I jumped into this landscape because I thought of the sort of transformative potential. I won't say revolutionary because I don't think it is, but the transformative potential that we're facing right now is significant. And so at least learning more about that could really help. If you learn and join, yes, you can make money. It's great. Reflecting on how to live better matters. And for me, that's what mattered about the crypto project. It's still what matters about philosophy. That's why I still look at you know indigenous traditions. To I think they have something to tell us. About how to live well. So the key piece that I take from all of this is: while I am an actor, it's action informed by reflection. Hence, go slowly in cryptos, but but also you know like kind of slowly in the big movements of life too. Uh, a lot of stuff is happening in the world. There's a lot of uncertainty. I could, I didn't even talk about big macroeconomic stuff that I spent a lot of my time thinking about. Actually, slow movements to a fast world are usually a little bit better than fast movements in that because you don't know the way things are going to go. So I found that the reflective approach forward. If I had to say like my own approach to life is it's really the reflective life. Leading a reflective life helps you live better and then helps you act well in our uncertain times. So that's sort of the the thing that I've enacted, even if I spent a lot of explicit time studying other philosophies. Sebastian, thank you for being a guest on Living Philosophy, and we look forward to seeing you in the cryptocurrency, blockchain, and philosophical spaces. Thanks, Todd. Glad to chat. If you would like to know more about Sebastian's publications and consulting, well, there's a lot out there. So please visit the podcast blurb for social media links and websites, or just search for The Art of the Bubble. As well, the podcast blurb will include more information about the topics discussed in this episode, including links to our sponsors. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Philosophy to You, Transitioning Your Life, Hermeneutics in Real Life, and The Infinite Staircase. If you would like to become a sponsor, please get in touch with us via the philosophytoyou.com website. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast, and please help spread the word of living philosophy. My name is Dr. Todd May. Thank you for joining us. And I hope you'll join us for our next podcast. Until then, 
Don't just read philosophy, live philosophically.